Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. In this episode, I have the opportunity to speak with the CEO and president of Mercy for Animals, Leah Garcins. She has nearly 20 years of leadership experience in the animal protection movement. Learn how she managed to find ways to partner rather than fight with some of the world's largest food companies as part of her mission to build a better and more humane food system. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome everybody. I'm looking forward to a special conversation with just the right person. So pleased to introduce all of you to Leah Garces, president of Mercy for Animals. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So great to see you. And I really want to get into the important subject of your work, uh, raising animals for food. Mm. You're uh, you're a vegan uh, and not an easy choice. What what caused you to decide that eating animal flesh just wasn't for you? Oh, well, that is a journey. And um, I say that because I think it's very important for people to know that most people did, weren't born vegan and that um, it's important to recognize and honor wherever you're at on that journey, um, whether it be the first time you're thinking about this today or you've been vegan for 20 years. Um, so my journey really started when I was a kid and I grew up in the swamps of Florida and we had these uh these ducks in our backyard and they would lay their the mother ducks would lay their eggs um in this flower bed that was my my mother's prized flowers and no one was allowed to go anywhere near these flowers except mama duck and she would smush it and create this like beautiful little nest and it was just on the other side of the screen porch and so my brother sister and I would like lay on our bellies and we would watch these lives unfold the the ducklings would hatch there would be the day they would go out to the pond for the first time there'd be lots of drama ducks are very dramatic in case you don't know that there's a lot of joy there's a lot of jealousy there's a lot of fun uh and I grew up very clear from observing this that these animals, ducks, were no different uh, than my family that I was growing up in. There were siblings and mothers and, you know, sadness and joy. And it was very shocking to me when I was about 15 years old, then when I found out that about factory farming, and it was a documentary on PBS, I don't even know which one. And... I watched it with my cousin. We were 15, very impressionable. And we were like, that's it. We can't believe this is the way animals are treated. I didn't know. We had no idea, no idea, because it's very hidden from view, out of sight, out of mind. And we went vegetarian. I did not go vegan um, until later. But it, I will say it was very slow. So, you know, I probably was eating some fish at the time and occasionally whatever my mom's, fit, you know, best dish was. 
But over time, I just became more and more committed. And it wasn't until I had my second son that I went vegan. So that's almost 13 years ago now. And I was nursing him. I was breastfeeding him and he was um, throwing up every day. And I didn't know why. And eventually, as I tried to wean him, I realized he was lactose intolerant. Mm. And I started thinking about, as I tried to give him cow milk to wean him off my milk, I made this connection, like, this is milk meant for another baby. And I'm giving it to my baby. And also, he's it's unhealthy. It's not even meant for him. His body's rejecting it. And I just, it just clicked. And I felt so ashamed in some way that I hadn't made this realization. But I also let that go pretty quickly and made the shift. Uh, and, you know, giving up cheese, I will tell anyone is hard. It was very hard 13 years ago, but now it's much easier because you have these amazing products like Miyoko's cheese and all kinds of other yogurts, and ice creams. You really don't suffer at all. I tell my three vegan kids, like you have no idea. I ate like textured vegetable protein, you know, in the early 2000s, you have impossible burger. Like life is pretty good for a vegan these days. Things have changed. Things have changed. Really true, but it's still not easy. And for many people, it's a hard choice to make. And and in your case, I think it probably drove you into the career you're in. And uh, just for everybody's benefit, I mean, you ran Compassion and World Farming for eight years, Uh and then World Animal Protection with staff in 14 countries, and now Mercy for Animals. And to really kick this off, Can you talk a little bit about the thought process behind your stated goal to construct a compassionate food system? Yeah. Um, You know, as you said, um, you know, my career actually started off in protecting all animals. And I was working in London uh, for 10 years and I was running campaigns against bullfighting and dolphinariums and bear bile farming all over the world. And before I was 30, I had been to 30 countries looking at all these atrocities in which humans cause suffering to animals from, you know, from whaling to dogs and cats to working donkeys. And it was uh, very soon into my career, I realized there was just this one area that caused the most suffering to the most number of animals. And that was the way we eat. It's the food system, it's factory farming. And that is doesn't matter if you're living in China, Brazil, or the United States or England, that around the world, this is happening. And the majority of, fact, of farmed animals are kept in factory farm settings, which do not respect that they are sentient beings, just like our dogs and cats. And, and over time, the absurdity of that has really impacted me. It's become more absurd to me that this is allowed, that this is a norm. And I I call it a normalized atrocity. Um, And, but as an activist, I realized, so I, I had like different phases where first I was like, if only people knew, and then I tried to convince people. And then I realized actually people know, and they're, have this cognitive dissonance where they turn a blind eye on purpose. Yes, exactly. And then I got angry and I was like, people are evil. That must be it. Like, you know, that was my angry phase, you know, and then I kind of softened over time and, and realized, you know, it's hard for people to make this choice. There's a lot of culture and history behind it. Um, and the way our food system is set up, the easiest, convenient, tastiest choice 
is mostly animals and we have to work hard to, to flip that. And so that was where I came in with wanting to construct a compassionate food system. So instead of just pointing out in my angry face, end it, this is wrong, this is evil. This was where I flipped and softened and said, it's not just my job to point out what's wrong. It's my job to construct something that's right. And we're doing that in different ways now, both in building a plant-based um, market economy that is convenient and cheap and tasty and fun. Um, and then also in helping farmers and communities transition away from relying on the economic part of factory farming, of helping them, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's not being angry at people involved, but it's a system that hurts all of us and working to change that system with the people closest, closest to the system. Yeah, it's an interesting topic just to begin with, because the idea of constructing a food system, it is almost as if we sort of unintentionally stumbled into and then grossly bloated and went completely out of whack with the system we have. And I want to talk about that too, but is your idea, this compassionate food system, good for animals and the planet? Oh, 100%. Um, yes. And it's people, planet, and animals. It's those, those, that triad that um, we're looking to achieve, we're looking to construct. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was just in Eastern North Carolina in Duplin County, which is the highest concentration of pig farms anywhere in the United States. And hmm. I was there actually meeting with um, mostly African-American community who have been on the land since they, their ancestors, their great-grandparents were freed slaves. And in the last 40, 30 years, the pig industry moved in around them in the land around them, in some cases, taking some of their land from them, set up these mega farms, and then the waste builds up and they have these things called lagoons. It's called lagoons, but they're actually cesspools. Then the cesspools get too filled with um, urine and feces from the pigs. And so they deposit of it on land around them um, they're called spray fields and they spray this horrific, horrific spray of feces and urine. Now imagine you live next to one of these spray fields. And as it turns out in Duplin County, it's mostly African-Americans living across from these spray fields and the quality of their life has totally deteriorated. So there you've got the animals are being tortured, have tortured lives inside of those warehouses where they're being raised the land is being destroyed by being sprayed and the people living in that community are having all kinds of health problems um, and their just general enjoyment of life has been evaporated and so you have but if you could flip that and you could find a solution all of those beings that the the, the people the pigs and the land would benefit well there's no question and, and it's interesting because for people trying to make the change, as hard as it is to stop eating bacon and, and perhaps all kinds of pork, that is the one animal, when you think about their intellect and their relationships, I mean, they're smarter than dogs. I mean, these animals are unbelievable and we don't give them any credit for anything. Uh, our goal is just to make them as big as we can so we can eat them. It's just, it's a hard gap. and. Uh, 
obviously ending the exploitation of animals would be, I think, welcome by most people. But the, the cognitive dissonance is that they have to give up something too. They're not just making it better for animals. They have to do something themselves. And I'm wondering how you feel about what can be done to bridge this gap between people eating whatever they feel like eating because it's delicious and people who think first about what they eat on a holistic level. How do you see that difference and how do we eliminate it? Yeah, I think there's two parts to, to answer that. One is I don't put it all on individuals. I put it on institutions and Mercy for Animals works really hard to change institutions policies. So we either are working to, to um, negotiate with a company or with a government to ban the worst practices in the system. Like well, let, me, let me just stop you there though. I mean, yeah. let's assume you were successful and you convinced all the pig farmers of the world to stop doing what they're doing. People would hate you. I mean, <laughs> there'd be a lot of people would say, well, that's not an improvement. They're just pigs. We want our bacon. What's the deal here? So yeah. there has to be a conglomerate corporate change, but it has to be a commensurate individual change, don't you see? Right, and that was my my second part. So you ah. can get you can make it like less thoughtless because it's going to be more expensive, less convenient, and so people at least have to go out of their way a little bit because right now you don't have to think about it. It's not. Right. Imagine, right. for example, if adding bacon, you had to add bacon to your salad or add chicken, that it was an add-on that you paid extra for. Yeah. If it was an, you know, an opt-in rather than an opt-out. Right. And I think those little changes proven to have a lot of impact to just make people just take that little pause to think about. It's a good idea. Like things that. you can do that can help people to pause and think. Yeah. But apart from that, the deeper kind of moral trajectory we're on is really getting folks to understand these are these are sentient beings and having an what we call an anti-speciest perspective mm. and the you know the the and blurring the lines in a little bit and saying because they are blurred and understanding that a pig is not very different than the dogs we cherish and they're no they're no different actually in terms of evolution and physiology uh, they have great capacity for friendships and uh, problem solving and doesn't that and but what i will say though is, is sort of intellect doesn't mean that they have more rights i don't believe in that i think that um and it was it was jeremy bentham that said it's it's um it's about can they suffer that's the real question we need to ask ourselves can they suffer yeah. and it's there's abundant evidence that farmed animals can suffer Oh, and yeah. therefore we have an obligation morally to reduce and if not as get as close as possible to eliminating their suffering so in the end it's about convincing the human spirit that this is this is true and this is something a value we need to live by uh, and that will take time to do and i do think that that's about uh, widening the circle of compassion and that is the ultimate thing we need to do it's an evolutionary change for humans it is. We it really definitely... is. And, and we have made progress as a human species in terms of how we've become less violent. That's very clear. Um, and, you know, there are more rights for people, despite the turmoil we may feel we are in. We have more rights as individuals. And, and so now it's about 
expanding those rights, expanding that compassion beyond individual humans to the species, to species, other species, even to nature. For example, there's a lot of talk at the UN level about the right of nature, right? Nature rights, for example. So, so like New Zealand giving names and rights to rivers and things. Right. It seems right. so appropriate to those of us who are focused on it. The natural right. world seems to be deserving of all the respect we give anybody, anything. Yeah. And yet, if you're not thinking in that direction, it's very easy to blot it out and not give it the conscious thought that you're describing that we really do need. So yeah. I'm right with you there. So in your view, what role, and you did give me the sequence, so this is important insight, I think, what role should the planet play in mm. decisions about what we eat and when? Mm. Oh, if the planet had her say, um, we would be using regenerative agriculture that was, and the difference, you know, we talked for a long time, the vocabulary was sustainable. Well, sustainable means to sustain as we are, and as we are is not okay. And we're at the stage where we actually need to regenerate the planet, make it better. And if we were to choose to do that, the, the role of animals in that would really be manure. It would be fertilization and turning up soil through rooting and stomping. It would not be for our consumption. It would be for tending the land. And if you think of the great kind of bison buffalo herds that once went across the Great Plains of the United States, they would create fertile land just through their roaming and through their stomping of the soil, their turning up manure that would be more of the purpose of animals if nature was in charge. If right, I mean, just if you look at animals in general, elephants, for example, are the gardeners of the forest and they spread the trees and they clear the small brush to give more carbon to the hardwoods and whales populate the ocean and support phytoplankton with their dung. I mean, it's, it's very clear that you're right about that too. And, Again, I think this is a blind spot in humanity. We haven't been exposed enough and don't think about these important things. Um, which brings me to my next point, which is, do I understand correctly that um, MFA, Mercy for Animals, is primarily focused on factory farming of chickens? No, we do all animals. I think that might be my my lens. Like I am definitely obsessed with chickens um, and have been my whole career because uh, the sheer number of them. So they constitute 90% of all factory farmed animals. And that's just meat chickens, excluding chickens that lay eggs. So we do focus on them a lot because of the number of individuals that suffer. And we focus on having the greatest impact. Um, but we cover all animals, uh, land and sea uh, and uh, but our focus has been chickens because of the sheer numbers, 90%, 80, there are 80 billion factory farmed animals that are raised and slaughtered every year. And about 70 billion of those are just chickens raised for meat. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk to you more about whales, but that's not your primary focus, I'm sure. It's so not, but I did, I did used to work on whaling. I went to the International Whaling Commission and I have a passion for whales as well in the sea. I absolutely do. So I'd love to share some thoughts about that. But for the mm -hmm. moment, I'm interested in beef cattle. Mm -hmm. Tell me what MFA is doing with this, I think, worldwide pandemic inducing problem of clear cutting forests, 
putting methane in the air and just the disproportionate number of cows, which would be naturally on the earth. How, what, it, what is MFA doing about those issues and how can we all help? Yeah, I think the one of the main things we do and what we're known for is undercover investigations and our drone investigations. And so um, a couple of years ago, we did, if you remember, there were these horrible fires in the Amazon. Oh, yeah. um, we actually did a uh, drone investigation showing that those fires were caused and related to clear cutting that was happening so that cattle could be um, on that land and graze on that land. Yeah. Um, and so the relationship between the destruction of very important ecosystems and the consumption of meat is very related. So we did a big demonstration in, in Brazil, um, in Sao Paulo, um, where we had giant grills and we had piece of, you know, fake meat, but it was, you know, looked like meat on, and the Amazon was the fuel underneath on fires and people were wearing gas masks. And we walked down the streets to just raise awareness that when you are eating cattle, cows, you are burning the rain, you are, you are related, your, your choice is related to, um, the rainforest. We've also done undercover drone investigations into big feedlots in the United States. These giant feedlots, thousands and thousands of cows living in their own feces, just blazing sun. We had one where there was three, you know, three, like 100, 100 plus degrees um, for cattle, and they were dying of dehydration and uh, and just suffering from from the heat stress. Um, so there's also the fact that people have this very pastoral view of how cows are raised, but the reality is for a lot of the lives of those lifetime that those cows are alive, they're spending it on these barren, like feces ridden feedlots where they're fattened with an unnatural feed to try to make them very fat for the last three months of their life so that they can make a burger or a steak. And so we, we do a lot of educative work. Um, and so, you know, watching those videos, going onto our website, sharing those videos and making choices informed by those videos, I think is something everybody can do. Yes, it's um, highly reminiscent of foie gras and all the other suffering in the final stages of the process of killing these animals for food. I'm going to shift gears for a second, but I definitely want to come back to undercover films because it's a very important topic in and of itself, but you've made sort of an epiphany in your career related to treating your enemies, as you put it, with humanity. And as a many, many year trial lawyer, I learned a lot about the importance of civility uh, mm -hmm. in lawsuits and dealing with other people. And a um, friend of mine once said, there's a whole lot of money in decency. And I thought, <laughs> what an interesting way to put it. But can you talk a little bit about your re breakthrough, really, in dealing with the people you have been fighting with uh, on a human level? Yeah, I mean, in 2014, um, I got a call from a journalist who wanted me to look at some papers he had got, and he had me meet in a coffee shop. And these papers had just the most incredible detail about what chickens were being fed. And I said, where did you get this? Because this is like confidential information. 
I thought he was going to say like, oh, we did an undercover. We pulled it out. Like somebody snuck it out. And he said, oh, this farmer gave it to me. And I was like, who would do that? I've been trying to get onto a chicken factory farm like openly and no one would let me. And so I said, well, you introduce me. And he did. And this man, Craig Watts is a farmer. And I started talking on the phone and we started connecting. And after- Purdue, um, right? He's with Purdue. He was with Purdue. And after a while, I had the kind of guts to ask him, can I come visit and can I film? Because it turned out we were pretty aligned that he also was fed up, that he also felt the consumer was being hoodwinked, as he said it, um, and that it wasn't true what the commercials were saying and what people thought. And he just couldn't live in himself anymore. And so I went out to see him in May of 2014. And that changed everything for me on how I solved this problem. Before that, I had seen people like Craig Watts, who had been a chicken factory farmer for 22 years as my mortal enemy. Like I blamed him. I was angry at him. I really felt like he was the reason this system existed. And if he didn't exist, the system would exist. But through a conversation with him and building a relationship, I realized that he, in fact, was as trapped as the chickens. If and he had this, what happened was when he was a young man, um, he wanted to stay on the land that had been passed down from his family for maybe a hundred plus years. And the chicken industry came to town and said, look, all you have to do is you take out a quarter of a million dollar loan. You buy, you build the houses and we'll bring you chickens and then we'll pick them up at the end and we'll pay you to do that. We'll pay you, you know, per pound of flesh basically that comes into the slaughterhouse. So he did that thinking this seems like a good way to stay on my land. And at first it went great. Everything went smoothly. And then pretty soon though, the birds started to get sick because it's a factory farm. They had problems. They were packed in, um, they had genetic issues and some of them die. And then he doesn't get paid for those dead birds. And pretty soon he realized he's made a really big mistake, but he's now actually he's in more debt because he built two more houses in the meantime and he can't get out. And he, and the only way to pay off this debt is to keep raising chickens because there's no other employer in the area. He's in a very poor County in rural North Carolina and he's trapped. And just fast forward 22 years, I meet him and he's saying like, I don't want anyone else to do this. This is so horrible. And I realized I had an ally in him that we were aligned that we both wanted a different food system that didn't abuse farmers. It didn't abuse the animals. And we ended up uh, doing a story together that ended up being covered by uh, Nicholas Kristoff in the New York Times. Our video went viral. Uh, we had a million views in one day and it really impacted the industry. They made started to make changes where they improved uh, conditions for the animals. They reduced the suffering of animals in the system. And they also made some changes for the, for the um, for the farmers. And this really switched my thinking like that. And, and this is not, I'm not the first one to come to this. So Gandhi, Martin Luther King talk about nonviolent approach. Your peers, right? No, not my peers. <laughs> People I've read about and understand yeah. the theories that they follow, which is that be angry at the system, not the people. It's the system we need to change. Uh, and that is that is that was the switch for me is that seeing these factory farmers as also victims of a system an oppressive system and we need to all work together to change the oppressive system it's another example of evolution of your humanity 
Correct. Yes. Yes. So back to the idea of these films, these undercover films that the industry hates. They don't want to be exposed in their many horrible schemes. Um, that's a powerful form of advocacy, no question. But do you see it as sort of the antithesis of trying to share your humanity with your seeming enemy? Yeah, that's a great um, challenge we've had is where does this exposing happen? Um, one big shift is in the past, Mercy for Animals might have shown a worker, for example, abusing an individual animal, and then that was the story. And we've shifted away from that story toward like a company, Costco. We did an undercover investigation under, into Costco, um, but we only did that after years of trying to negotiate and educate the company and, and them not listening and really being left with no other choice. Like an undercover investigation is expensive, it's risky, it's difficult. For the investigator, it is spiritually draining. It is not something we go into lightly. And it is a last resort because the company isn't listening. And we need to use it because we have, first and foremost, a moral responsibility to those animals. And if we tried everything else, this is what we have to do to be like, you're lying and you're not, you're not being honest. And people, your customers don't want this. And here's a photo to show what you're actually doing. And that it's accountability essentially. And we don't do it lightly. It's a last resort. No, I see that, but I'm just wondering, I mean, in response to that, do you agree that the success of organizations like Mercy for Animals and exposing these cruelty films are the genesis of the so-called ag gag laws? Oh, well, I wouldn't blame us. I blame them for I'm not trying. blaming you. Yes, but, I think. But are they not the normal response? Oh, absolutely. Of yeah. A powerful industry with connections to the politicians. Maybe you yeah. can explain a little bit about how what's going on there. Yes. So ag gag is where states have passed laws making it a felony to film inside of a factory farm, even when you find abuse and wrongdoing. The person who exposed that abuse and wrongdoing is breaking the law, not the person doing the wrongdoing. And several states, actually, I think 13 states now have passed laws making it a felony to film inside of a factory farm. That's how threatened they feel by the reality of a camera being inside of one of these places. That's how powerful the investigations can be. Um, no doubt that they're powerful. The question really is, and don't expose any trade secrets that we shouldn't know, but now what? How do we deal with that? Well, we can't investigate in those states. And so we have to find other methods. And the other methods that we are working through is, is working directly with going in another route, which is fact, working with the factory farmers. So we have a program called Transformation. And transformation is uh, where we are working directly with the factory farmers who want to transition and finding ways out. And that's, we can do that because they invite us onto these farms. They own the property and they allow us to be there to take photos sometimes. To, we had a piece in the New York Times, which was in uh, May, 
um, an op doc um, a documentary uh, that was done with the New York Times that was from a farmer who was fed up and invited us, let us film, that kind of thing. So it's it's going in another way. I think this truth will always find a way. It will. Have you ever looked into um, the viability of measuring cortisol in the systems of the animals to prove yes. the heightened stress levels associated with all that? Absolutely. Um, there's a huge, vast amount of research done on the impact on animals on their welfare and their health. Um, measuring cortisol is an invasive approach. There are less invasive approaches to show uh, animals' preferences and their stress. So there is pref a typical animal welfare scientist will to find out if an animal prefers one thing or the other or has any preference at all or an avoidance they do preference testing. So that, for example, a very um, simple test that's been done uh, is that they give broiler chickens, they give them the choice of feed that has essentially ibuprofen, a painkiller in it, and feed that doesn't. And then they monitor to see which one is eaten more. And this is a way to kind of indicate without doing a test invasively, are they in pain? And they all go and eat the, the feed over time that has the cord that has the ibuprofen in it. And this is a way to say, yes, broilers are in pain because of the fast growth genetics that they have to endure for the industry's fast growth you know, pace. Right. But I was thinking more of cortisol literally in the byproduct, the meat. Oh, yes, that too. So um, there is evidence around not trying not to stress the animals around slaughter, especially pigs, um, and it can taint the meat if they are. And so sometimes meat is actually disposed of because they are so stressed um, and it, it creates a tougher meat, essentially a tough, a really tough meat. If they're, they have a lot of um, adrenaline and cortisol in their, in their um, meat. Um, so, and that's arguments that we've used to say, do your best to have the highest welfare right before slaughter because it has a negative economic impact. And that's the kind of angle we've tried to use to convince slaughterhouses to be more humane during slaughter practices. Right, it's good. How much does cruelty factor into your thinking about eating animals? Hmm. Put another way, if it was humane, would it be okay? Well, for me, no. Um, I think animals have agency and they want to live. And I know that for a fact, having lived with an individual chicken, um, I rescued a chicken from a factory farm. Her name is Henrietta. I want to ask you about Henrietta later, but we can okay. it now. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I, I, there are so many animals that I observe in factory farms that are fighting for their life. They don't, even in these abhorrent conditions, they do not want to die. They well, have friends, no question about that. Agency, they want to live. And so when I, as a human being, could choose, and I do choose, and live a very healthy life, a very rich life, uh, to not cause harm, then why wouldn't I choose that? Why would I choose a path that does? Of course, I agree with all that. But I was sort of going in a di different direction. My question perhaps wasn't artful. For those of you who haven't read it, you should read the China study, and I'm sure, mm. Leah, you're familiar with it, but animal protein is not good for us, and, right. and I don't think that's well recognized, and I'm just thinking out loud, even if you 
don't care about the cruelty, which we all should care about. And I, I think we should change it for that reason alone. And the impact on the planet is just unbelievable. We should change it for that reason alone. But what about the fact that animal protein literally is not made for people who want to live a long time? Right. Yeah, there's very clear studies about longevity, human longevity, um, usefulness, and just general health, especially around chronic diseases and consumption of animal products. And I say animal products is not just meat, it's eggs and dairy too. Um, and, you know, I think that you don't have to look far to find research supporting that. And most, for I'll give you just an anecdotal, my, my father had a heart attack three years ago um, and he survived and he was lucky and he was a healthy man. Like he swam one mile five times a week and he was not overweight. He was active. Uh, and, but he ate a lot of animal products and the couple of days before his heart attack, he told me he had had like leftover meatball subs, like three times in a row. Mm. And no doubt when, so I took him to his first cardiologist appointment after the heart attack and the cardiologist sat him down and said, you need to eat a whole foods plant-based diet. And he went, Oh, my daughter's been telling that for years. Oh, <laughs> hey, when she's right. And I said, well, I'll help you. And you know, he has not transitioned to hundred percent vegan, but they do my, and my mother transitioned as well, but they eat 50% less animal products than they used to eat. And when they do eat, it's very small amounts. It's as a garnish rather than like, you know, meat and two veg. And so there's, there's paths you can take to reduce without feeling like this is a weight, this is a punishment, this is too hard. Um, and a lot of like the way I think about it is, would it be easier to get the world to eat 50% less animals or 50% of the world to go vegan? And it's much easier to imagine everyone, especially Americans who consume more animals than anywhere in the entire world to go 50%, just take it out. Like, you know, go vegan for your breakfast and lunch. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in the China study, they have a couple of what I would call almost secondary studies that were so powerful when I was reading it as compared with the massive China study itself. But one of them involved rats. They had two groups of rats. One, they gave 50%, I think it was, casein, the protein in milk. The other got 10%. The one with 50%, 100% of the rats got cancer. The ones with 10% zero got cancer. Then they switched the control groups. And the one with all cancer got 10%. They all went into remission. The one with zero cancer went up to 50. They all got cancer. I mean, it didn't get much clearer than that. And they did a study in Beverly Hills. They talked about with a cardiologist. They took a population of people, all who had already experienced cardiac episodes, one group was told traditional, you know, watch your exercise, don't eat too much of this, don't eat too much of that, but basically just moderate. And the other side was to go vegan. And when the study ended, all of the people who just followed the normal cardiac doctor's advice were dead. And all of the vegans were living with the exception of two. And those are the two that couldn't take being vegan and they went back. Yeah. So... It yeah, those longevity you. studies are really coming to fruition now because we've had enough time studying people and the health impacts. And it's just abundantly clear 
that a whole foods plant-based diet is the best diet for a human being. It and really is. Diet. And it's, that's hard to swallow, pun intended. So, <laughs> well, I'm curious, what do you, or and either with or against uh, joining MFA in the conversation, what do you think about the existential threat that farming presents to the planet? This is just a whole independent line of reasoning, but how do you see that as an organization or individual? Both, I mean, I, the individual and the organizational is aligned in that it is an existential threat and it's a simple math problem. That's how I try to pose it to people. There's a certain finite resources, especially arable land. And that arable land is running out. And arable land, I mean like the topsoil is fertile enough to grow us food. Now in the United States, a so a third of our arable land right now globally is being used to raise animal feed instead of humans feed. And so what we're doing is we're using this precious resource to raise soy and maize and then feeding it to factory farmed animals who are you know, causing pollution and suffering themselves and suffering the community and then we're eating them. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a really inefficient way to get calories out of the planet. And the ecosystems of the world all suffer from it. And everyone suffers. And there's actually a, a new book out this week in the UK called 60 Harvests Left. And it's referring to a UN quote, um, a UN study that believed that in some countries, there are only 60 harvests left of topsoil unless we change how we farm and how we eat. Um, the book is called is is by Philip Limbury, who is my mentor um, at Compassion World Farming and the CEO, a global CEO of Compassion World Farming. Excellent. So as we near the end, I'd like you to talk about your lessons in dealing with sort of the challenges we all face, regardless of what the subject is, tied to little Henrietta. Oh. <laughs> My favorite subject. Um, Henrietta was a broiler chicken who was supposed to go become a chicken sandwich, but I had the opportunity to rescue her. And I brought her home into my family and it was the most beautiful experience. We had her for a little over a year uh, and she taught me so much. It was during COVID. It was very challenging to be an advocate at that time where it felt like the problem is just going on and I can't do anything about it. Um, and probably the biggest lesson I learned was to, to not entangle my self-worth with the magnitude of the problem. And to remember that as an individual, I can make an impact and that impact matters. And in this case, it mattered to Henrietta. And to not think I'm not worthy, I'm not doing enough, but just showing up and being here and doing the work I do matters. And not to entangle my sense of worth with how big the problem is. And actually, um, you know, Cory Booker recently said something like I on a on a um interview, he said, you know. Don't confuse it. Don't confuse not being able to do everything with being able to do something. And I think as advocates, sometimes we just get so upset that we can't do everything. And the problem is so enormous and the magnitude of the problem is so enormous. And just having those moments of joy with Henrietta and, and that I was reminded of why do I do this? Because 
it's a joyful thing to see a hen run across a lawn for some watermelon to hug my daughter and to like remember that at the at the core of why I do this is joy is love and it was good to be grounded in that um and I try to ground myself in that when I'm feeling frustrated or overwhelmed by the size of the task in front of us yeah you know Henrietta as I've heard you relate this story touches another approach to this that is so similar in my own but you know you're looking at tens and tens of thousands of chickens crammed into these facilities in the most daunting, horrible conditions. It's hard to see them as an individual. And then you take one out who was slated to be killed early because she wasn't good enough to be, as you put it, killed and then eaten, which is such a demeaning thought. I mean, Look at all the people of our planet who wouldn't be good enough to be eaten. Very few of us would ever qualify <laughs> by those standards because we all have our problems. And seeing an individual and recognizing that you made a difference there and that it is important. It is much more than just one animal. There's a lesson in that, similar to my starfish story, which is my mantra, that the little boy on the beach and he's throwing him back and the old man says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm saving starfish. They're dying out here on the rocks. And the old man looks down the beach and says, there are millions of them. You can't make a difference. And the little boy, again, with the wisdom of youth, tosses one back and turns back with a smile and says, it made a difference to that one. And Henrietta story. is your starfish. Yes. And I really think that a lot of us aren't paying attention to this. And so we don't recognize that we do have starfish in our lives. Perfect should never be the enemy of the good. And, and when we talk about knowing and believing that our actions have value, that should be with intention, which of course is what you're doing. And, and kind of on that theme, I wonder if you can give a final thought to our listeners that they can take to heart as key things they should consider going forward. I think you said it so well by saying, don't, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And I say better, like, don't let perfect be the enemy of better. And whatever step you're taking, wherever you are in your journey, you are making a difference. And that matters. It really matters to the animals and to the planet and, and to people. And so whatever step you can take, as long as it's in the right direction, it's good. It's good. Leah, thank you so much for taking time. I know you got an incredibly busy schedule. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Thank well, you. Well, so thank much. you. Thanks for all you do with Ecoflix and all you do as an advocate. I, I'm really grateful. Well, this has been a wonderful sharing, and I really hope we can do it again. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.